Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Beautiful day, huh? All right, so Pastor Scott is actually hanging out with his mother today, which is awesome of him. And that means I get to spend some time with you guys, which is always a blessing for me. So if you have your Bibles, please flip them open to Genesis 3. But just so you know, I'm kind of going to be all over the Bible. So, uh, you know, if, if you want to just be on track for the first one, you can go and flip there. But if you just want to get an overview of it and, and look through, just uh, take notes and you could look at these passages on your own time. But since it is Mother's Day, I thought it would be really cool and a good journey for us as a church to go through biblically how does the Bible look at motherhood and how may it differ a little bit from our culture and from cultures that surround us. Because uh, we're going to see in this first passage that I read, there is an agenda. There is an agenda of Satan, of evil, that moves and militates against women. So this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. And I will put enmity, this is God speaking to Satan, by the way, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you love us and you care for us in the way that you do. I pray that you would allow us to focus in on your word and allow it to speak to us in a way that that moves our understanding, moves our preconceptions about this really vital topic, helps us to glory in your creation and your design. We love you, Lord, and in your name, amen. So uh, every service I'm doing a different message. Uh, The first service was a broad overview of the unique glory of motherhood as described through the scriptures. This one's going to be focusing on a very particular aspect of motherhood, uh, namely the aspect of pregnancy and childbirth as being a uniquely glorifying aspect given to the woman and not to the man. Some people would not see it as a great glorifying aspect of motherhood, but I'm going to do my best to try to help, uh, help us all see how Scripture views this act and why that's so valuable and important. But again, I, I do want to, as a backdrop, give you guys that first verse, that verse 15, that remember, it is a plan, it is a stratagem of the enemy to persecute women and to demean the quality of motherhood. Uh, there's many theories as to why Satan does this. Some people believe it's because Satan despises the idea that women can create life, and he lacks that ability. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that angels do not marry, neither are they given in marriage. So some theologians have theorized that that is part of the animosity that Satan has for women. And we see it directly stated here. It says that there is a enmity, there's a hatred between Satan and women. And we see him practice this hatred throughout world history, We see him practice it throughout cultures surrounding us. But today, like I said, in this service, I want to hone in and specifically focus on the next verse, this idea that God is going to greatly multiply the sorrow in conception, and in pain, women shall bring forth children. 
Now, depending on how we look at this verse dictates how we look at the act of childbirth. If you see this verse as being merely a curse, which is how some Christians have looked at it throughout the ages, this is merely a curse from God, then it's something that women just have to take on the chin. It's just, well, you know, sorry, ladies, but Eve screwed up, and now you're going to pay for it. And some men have even looked at it and said, well, you know, yeah, women got to go through it tough in childbirth, but you shouldn't have eaten the fruit. You know, it's kind of on you, and I don't really care very much. Some men, and I'm not making this up, some men vehemently opposed, and women too, vehemently opposed the idea of medication for women going through childbirth, like epidurals. Because they said, oh, you're trying to undo the curse of the garden. That's evil. Um, That's not what this passage is about. The reason why I read both verse 15 and 16 is to show where God is going with it. When you read it together, it makes a lot of sense. So God teaches Satan that he's going to have enmity between the woman and he gives a specific reason. There's, there's other reasons implied, but the specific reason is because from the woman will come the Savior. From, from woman will come Messiah, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Man did not involve himself in the creation of Jesus. It was only through the womb of Mary that Messiah came and conquered Satan. Because of that role that God has given woman, Satan has hated her. But then he transitions. So he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about this promise that the child of woman, the seed of woman, will crush the head of Satan. And then he says, he follows that by saying, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Because of where it's located, because of how God words this, I don't believe we're meant to specifically look at this as a curse. I think we're actually supposed to look at it as a means of understanding the creation as a whole. This is the first time the concept of pain and suffering has ever been brought up in the Bible. Prior to this time, there was no pain, there was no suffering. So God introduces this concept and he relates it specifically to childbirth. Now, the picture there is pretty, it's not subtle. It's very obvious and clear when you see it and you study this as a narrative. The concept that God is bringing about is this idea that life, goodness, salvation, and love do not come painlessly, but they come through suffering and sacrifice. Everything good that we're going to have in this life will not be gotten painlessly. If you want to have a healthy marriage, you're going to have to learn how to suffer and to be patient with your partner. You're going to have to learn how to work on yourself and maneuver towards God in a way that you can appropriately love your partner and diminish the wickedness in your own heart that prevents you from doing so. If you want to have a successful career, you have to work hard. You have to labor You have to dedicate yourself to being diligent and self-controlled. It doesn't happen painlessly. Every good thing, every good gift in human existence only comes through suffering, including the most important thing that humans can do, create in our own image through the gift of maternal childbearing. 
So in other words, this curse of suffering is not directed specifically at the woman, but instead the curse of suffering is given to all mankind, but it's explained through the woman. And I hope that makes sense. So the purpose of suffering is explained through childbirth. Now, this is a line, again, that we see throughout the scriptures. I'll give you an example of this. This is Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about suffering in general. Not specific suffering, just suffering and pain that exists around the world in general. And he says that God subjected the creation to futility in hope. That pain, although it's unpleasant, it does serve a specific purpose within the creation that God puts his hope upon. That God believes that if man was given a painless existence without him, man would conclude, therefore, I can have a painless eternity without God. It is only through an existence, a life, that we understand separation from God brings about pain and suffering, that man is able to conclude, therefore, an eternity without God would be only suffering. And therefore, I must turn to him and find connection with him if I want to be saved. God purposes pain in order to express the gospel. C.S. Lewis, very famous, famous Christian author in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, God whispers to us in our experiences but he shouts to us in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world to his purposes. So it's unpleasant. None of us like pain, but it has a purpose. It has a purpose. And this act of the maternal ability to bear children and the suffering associated with it, it is not something that women just simply have to get through. It is something that, if we understand it correctly, can speak volumes to us about God's plan and purpose towards us in general and our ability to bear and raise our children in a way that honors him. All good things come through sacrifice. Nothing is won bloodlessly. Now, in a culture like ours, where we have outsized wealth and prosperity— it's very simple and easy for us to believe that suffering and sacrifice are aberrational and wrong, inappropriate. In fact, many people in our culture conclude that if suffering occurs in your life, you must be doing something wrong. And therefore, this is a penalty or punishment from God. That's how a lot of people in our culture look at suffering. They don't look at it as sanctified, holy, or beautiful at all. They look at it as only ugly and consequential to negative behavior. That's why the predominant church movement in America right now is the prosperity gospel. That's what we believe. We believe if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. Now think about that for a second. If you live your life with that philosophy, how would you look at childbirth? It's only consequential because the woman messed up. You can't look at it as being anything positive. You can't look at it as anything beautiful. You have to condemn it, and you have to hate it. Now, this is why language in our society today, which sounds so strange, it sounds so strange to previous generations, exists where women describe pregnancy not as a gift, 
but as an almost invasion by a foreign entity seeking to kill them. Some women, some feminists today, literally describe pregnancy as a parasitic relationship. Listen to this one woman. This is Elizabeth Spears or Spires. I'm not really sure how to pronounce her name. But she wrote a very interesting article earlier this year talking about why adoption is actually not a good thing and why abortion is actually superior. Now, in this article, this is what she says about her own pregnancy. This is one of the paradoxes of pregnancy. Something alien is usurping your body and sapping you of nutrition and energy. But you're programmed to gleefully enable it, and you become desperately protective of it. It's a kind of biological brainwashing. Isn't that a beautiful picture of motherhood? On Mother's Day, we're like, yeah, you know, that's motherhood. Biological brainwashing. That's what we're all about. Our culture, and I, I talked about this a lot more in depth for service, our culture has abused and mistreated women in an attempt to erase them entirely. The glories of motherhood have been completely devalued, and we only value women in their role as men, not as mothers. This is very tragic, and it's very sad, and again, it goes entirely against Scripture, but it does begin with this idea, how do we view pregnancy and childbirth? Is it a penalty? Is it a consequence? Or is it a lesson? Something symbolic? Unfortunate, but hollowed. Well, let's go through the Bible and see if we can make this argument successfully. So this is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 25. Paul's speaking here. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Now, when you read that, any of you guys who have been in childbirth or around someone who's actually going through childbirth, it sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Jesus gives his body and he says, it's broken for who? For us. And he gives his blood for us as well. You know, after my wife delivered our first child, I was prepared for this event by many people saying, it's going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, the birth of your child. And it is and it isn't. I'll put it this way. It is simultaneously the most ugly, beautiful thing I've ever seen. That's what it is. Because on one token, I'm looking at my daughter, and she's laying on my wife's chest, and she's snuggling with her, and we get to see her, this child that we've been uh, just bonding with and excited to see. And then on the other end, you have someone push on my wife's stomach, and a large amount of blood just comes flooding out into a bucket. Sorry about that. Hopefully you're not eating or anything while you're listening to this. You know, and so you, you have this in one token, you have this incredible beauty where life is coming forth, but on the other end, you have what? Death, blood, suffering. And when you look at this verse that Paul's giving, it must have finally clicked for all the women experiencing childbirth. Oh, this is entirely reflective of the promise of our Messiah. That as I give my birth, as I give my body, 
to be broken, to be bruised, to be subjected to suffering and labor. So my God gives his body to be broken and beaten and bloodied so that I can become his child. The act of the cross perfectly hollows and sanctifies childbirth. It uniquely declares the glory of the gospel in a way that nothing else on this planet ever could. We become children of God, not apart from suffering, but through the suffering of our Lord. And we become biological children of our parents through their suffering on our behalf as well. Now, there are other passages that speak of suffering as a glory. There's actually quite a few. I don't have time to go through them, but you could read them on your own time. One is Romans chapter 5. I encourage you to read the first six verses of Romans 5 to see this put in really plain language for us. The other is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18. The passage I'm going to read is Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. So after Paul describes the glory of Jesus suffering for us and dying for us, giving his body on our behalf, he says, therefore, because of what? Because of what Jesus did for us, how he suffered. God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven on those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why is Jesus given the name above every name? Why not the Father? Why not the Holy Spirit? Is because Jesus, uniquely in the Trinity, gave his body for us. In other words, the people in the past who looked at childbirth, this is why Jewish men would sometimes pray, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. A lot of people looked at the fact that women had to suffer through childbirth as God de-glorifying the woman. They said, man doesn't have to go through that because God must like men a little bit better. But in this passage, we see why does Jesus have unique glory in the Trinity? Because he suffered and gave his body. Does that make sense? Women have a unique glory in this world and in the world to come because they give their bodies for their children in a very real way. There is a glory, there is a beauty, there is an amazing amount of honor due to women because they go through this, waiting for us in heaven. We get a piece of this on this earth, but in heavenly places, you will go through this. This is why, again, a lot of people have seen the role of the woman as something to be venerated. So some churches went a little too far with it in saying that, you know, Mary in giving birth to Jesus is, uh, you know, hollowed and the co-redemptrix Christ and things like that. They went a little too far, but they saw something that's true that sometimes we can miss. There is a role that Mary held that did give her unique glory, that her body specifically bore the Messiah and was broken to bring him into the world. There is a beauty there. There is a glory there. There is a veneration and honor due to women because of that. And we need to be careful not to miss it. Now, really quickly before I move on, I do want to establish one thing. 
I read this passage last time, but in Isaiah chapter 54, you can read it on your own time, Isaiah talks about uh, rejoicing for the barren woman, the woman who does not bear children. Now, what he's saying, if you read that passage, he's not saying in any way that we're diminishing the glory of the mother because some women's bodies can't do that. What he's saying is actually the fact that some women cannot bear children either because they give their lives to be single or because their bodies are broken in some way, that's a result of the fall. That's not good. What the gospel does is the gospel grants consolation to women and to men who cannot enjoy this glory, who cannot partake in it. So he's saying that you can have hope and you can have comfort and you could have amazing amounts of consolation in Christ with or without this role. Now, that was different. In Isaiah's day, women literally became suicidal if they couldn't bear children. And we see this in the Bible. Sarah was suicidal. Hannah was suicidal. Rebecca was suicidal. I'm sorry, Rachel was suicidal because they couldn't bear children. Because they concluded, if I can't bear children, I must not be honored by God, and therefore I have no worth. Isaiah is saying, you do have a worth. You can have glory apart from motherhood. But let's not go too far. That doesn't diminish the glory of motherhood in and of itself. That brings comfort to women who can't, but it brings further honor to women who can. We have to be very careful with that. At any rate, it's very interesting. Some people have said our culture has actually moved in a very satanic way. And I do find it interesting that in this 1 Corinthians 11 passage, you have a specific claim by God where he says, this is my body broken for you. And we have people around our country right now yelling out, my body, my choice. In other words, this flip, this reversal of what Christ is saying goes something like this. God gives his body to be broken for his offspring. In our culture, we break our offspring so that our body can be preserved. That is a reversal. It's an absolute reversal of what Christ says and what he wants us to understand through the act of childbirth. Some have argued that the reason why abortion should be legal is because women have to go through a level of suffering that is unfair if they have not consented to it. And again, this is a perspective that suffering in and of itself is not glorious or redeemable. It is something that you only go through and it is to be avoided at all costs. That's not exactly how God wanted us to live. Now, this is also not something that's unique to our world, though. Infant sacrifice has been around since before mankind, I mean, before Christ, before any of our cultures have existed. Uh, since man has existed, there has been infant sacrifice. And I don't have time to get into this by now, right now, but it's very interesting that Jewish scholars have looked at Genesis 22, where Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac, and they look at it as God's condemnation of, infant, of child sacrifice. In other words, child sacrifice was so widespread and practiced in his day that Abraham, the reason why he didn't really blink when God asked him to offer his son is because every God asked you to offer your son. What was surprising was not that God asked. What was surprising is that God eventually said, no, I will provide a sacrifice. That was the surprising chain of events. But offering your children, 
has been practiced throughout human history. Now, I will say their cultures are ironically superior to ours. Why? One particular idol that we see mentioned throughout the scriptures is an idol called Moloch. Uh, Moloch was an idol that you would sacrifice your children to, and you would do so by heating up this idol that had outstretched arms, and you would burn your child alive on this particular thing, this evil machination of men. The interesting thing, though, is that in that sacrifice, the reason why the God asked for it is because the assumption of the culture is that the child was valuable. In other words, I believe that my fealty to my God is greater than my fealty to my child. And it was seen as a great sacrifice and show of faith. In our culture, the difference is, is that we've devalued the child to such an extent that we don't look at it as sacrifice, we look at it as an abdication of suffering. So in other words, we do it for purely selfish motivations, as opposed to that culture that at least saw it as a sacrificial offering that they would suffer through. So in that way, I would say that our culture's actually taken some steps backwards in our perspective of motherhood and our perspective of sacrifice and honor. But does this mean that men are off the hook? All right, so women give their bodies. Men don't have to give their bodies. Can we just kind of sit back and be like, well, you know, go for it, honey. I'm your cheerleader. You give your body, you know, for our baby. I'm, I'm super happy for you. Uh, no, Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. The man is to give the body for his wife and for his family. We just do it in different ways. You know, I, when I was in the infantry, now it was 10 years ago, so I got out of the Marines in 2012. And right when I got out, they were starting to integrate women into the infantry. And there was a lot of debate about why women should be allowed in. And most people focused on the biology, well, as long as a woman can function equally to a man, meaning as long as a woman can pass the physical standards of a man, why can't they be in the infantry? You know, the reason why women have not been allowed to serve in the military throughout human history was not because people did not think that women were capable of serving in the, in the infantry, the military. The reason why is because in their mindset, they said, women already give their bodies for their families. Men must give their bodies in a unique way to uphold the family. The sacrifice of the man to go to war and to fight to protect his family is his way of giving his body. Because the roles can't be switched, I cannot give my body in childbirth I give my body in a different way. This is the foundation of what we call chivalry. Women give their bodies already. Men must uphold their complementary role within the union by sacrificing their bodies in a different way, providing and protecting. It has nothing to do with capacity. Now, I can make some biological claims about a man's body versus a woman's body, but really that kind of falls on deaf ears. It doesn't matter because there, obviously there are women who are stronger than some men. Generally, no, but yeah, there are obviously women who are stronger than some men. I still wouldn't want them in the military. Why? Because they're already giving their bodies. 
men give their bodies in this way. This is our honor. This is our glory. This is the way that we reflect Christ. I give myself for my family so that my wife doesn't have to. That's the whole point. Now, beyond that, I could I could make other arguments about the effects of a child when they don't have a father versus the effects of the child when they don't have a mother. Very different effects. And yes, one is worse than the other. A child can exist without his father, and they will have predictable psychological damage from that. But the a child that doesn't have a mother irreparably damages the child. And psychologists have proven this throughout the ages. I did some research this week. One interesting study that you could look up on your own time, it evaluated what happens to a child when they're, pre, uh, they're premature and they go to the NICU. So it's amazing. We should, we should marvel at the fact that modern-day science has allowed pre, uh, premature babies to live, to exist. But even though the mother can be around the child, because the primary care is not coming from her, the longer that child is in the NICU, it actually can produce some really severe psychological effects, right? And they've, they've documented it. They've documented what it can do to a child. It's not mere care that the woman provides. It is a giving of herself to a child that she affectionately loves. That's what makes the difference. A child, in other words, before they could even understand what this means, before they could even contemplate the significance of it, the fact that you are receiving nurture from your mother's body and the fact that she is caring for you and sacrificing of herself for your sake, it teaches you very young, without a word, that you matter and have value. And it has an amazing lifelong impact on a child. Just those first couple months, sounds weird, those first couple months with the mother has amazing lifelong impacts on that child for the rest of their life. There is an amazing glory to the role of mothers in bonding with their children in the womb and once the child comes into the world. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that. That is why chivalry exists, right? I don't open the door for my wife because I think she's too weak to do it on her own. Chivalry exists because there is a recognition. It was a veneration of women in saying, we understand what your role asks of you what you have to endure for our family. And I am going to honor you through chivalrous actions. That's how the ancient people saw it. We've lost that. We've lost that. We don't venerate women anymore. And we don't see this aspect of motherhood as being something that needs to be venerated or looked up to. I'll give you a couple real quick ones as well. This is also very interesting. Women housing life in their womb, in their bodies, is a direct connection. There's a direct correlation to the fact that our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit in Christ. So just as a woman is able to house her children in her body, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. He's making a connection there. He's making a connection that women doing this actually speaks of the glory of God indwelling us that they're understanding something. 
another important aspect of it as well is that uh, this is interesting. It's one that I'm kind of still working through in my mind to fully understand. But in Mary's case especially, think about what happens. God gives Mary's body the material, and Mary basically develops the material and births a son. In the same way, man gives material to a woman, and that same type of process happens. In Christianity, what happens is God gives inspiration to man through his being in our lives and through his creation that inspires us to create in the arts, in the workplace. We create by the inspiration of God because of what he has put in us. And we evangelize and create spiritual offspring through what God is doing in us. So again, these are wonderful, beautiful metaphor connections to this string of motherhood and its unique glory throughout the Gospels. Again, it is not that the role of the man is diminished, but that each complementary role is unique in the glory bestowed upon it by God. But if I had, if your back's against the wall and I had to say which one's better than the other, it seems through the Bible that the role of the woman is superior because of how clearly and specifically it speaks of God's work in our lives. Now, the second one, I don't have much time, so I'm going to kind of run through this very quickly. I thought this was kind of funny. You guys might. You guys might not. Uh, so childbirth has an interesting sanctifying role within our lives, and this is for everybody involved. Um, number one, you can't grow up. You cannot mature until you care about someone more than you. What happens when you bear a child what happens when you bear a child is you start really wrestling with that genuine truth, my body is not my own. It's a truth that's throughout the scriptures, by the way. Your body is not your own. It is given for others. The apostles at various times when, and other early church members, when they were martyred, they would often recite something to that effect. They would say, just as my Lord gave his body for me, I will give my body for the gospel and for others. There was this idea that was very clear and dominant within their minds. Unfortunately, again, since we live in such a selfish culture, it's very hard to communicate to young people, your life is not your own. You don't find worth, value, and meaning through pursuing what you want. You find worth, value, and meaning through giving up yourself for others. That's how you find fulfillment. That's how you find joy. You live for yourself. Jesus says, if you try to hold on to this life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. You live for yourself, you'll be miserable. You learn to love someone more than yourself, you give, you give yourself for them, you will find fulfillment and meaning. You are never truly alive until you love something enough to die for. Children do that very quickly in, a, in an incredibly unique way. Beyond that, it's good to see that you're no longer the center of attention. So, uh, you know, my daughter's two years old now. And it's interesting, whenever I bring her anywhere, she is the center of attention. Right? I am not the center of attention. doesn't matter who I'm talking to. She can't even talk. And people want to talk to her more than me. And it's right. That's correct. That's the way it should be. Because that's what my life is. I am giving my life for her life. Everything I do in my life is to support her and to grow her. And even if it costs me my own, I will protect her. She does need to be the center in that way. And then as she grows up, I need to learn, I need to teach her how to not see herself as a center in every way, 
But in the beginning, it's good for me to recognize that my life is not my own. This one is probably the most uh, annoying part of pregnancy for most women. Uh, society treats pregnant women as if they are public property. Now, what this means, any of you who've been pregnant, you know what I mean. Normally, it would be kind of uncouth to walk up to a woman and touch her stomach and rub it and whisper to it. But when you're pregnant, people just feel like, yeah, I could do that. You know, it's very weird, very odd and off-putting, but people just do it. It's always like they see the woman's body as public property. Now, there's a negative part of that and a positive part of it, but they also see your child, in a way, as public property. Strangers come up to me, and they talk to me. They would have never done it if I wasn't with my daughter, but they do. They come up to me because I'm with my daughter. It's almost like, as human beings, we recognize the creation of life as being so beautiful that we want to enjoy it collectively. We want to be a part of it. Even to such a minuscule level. This is so weird. I thought people were joking, but have you ever smelled a newborn? They actually smell good. It's weird. They smell sweet. I thought people were exaggerating. It's like, ah, it's just because it's your baby. They're going to be covered in spit up and vomit. There are no ways to smell good. They really do. If you haven't smelled a newborn, try it. You know, maybe get a scent of it. I don't know. I don't know if people could bottle it or something like that, but there, there is a unique scent that newborns have, and it's, it's like God has designed us down to our bones to love children. That every aspect of the creation of life is supposed to be so endearing to us that we even like the scent. This not only teaches us what our lives are about, about the propagation of life, but it also teaches us the importance of parenthood, motherhood, the beauty of bringing up the next generation, and seeing us as a human race as collective as opposed to separate. There is a beauty there and a significance there. And again, that is why I always shudder when I hear dehumanizing language spoken of children. What is a child's value? There's an interesting passage in the Bible. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. It's quoted, but it's also in Exodus. When Moses is born, there was a, I guess you could call it a kill order on all babies, all male children. His mother was supposed to kill him. And it says that she saw him, that he was beautiful, and she couldn't kill him. Now, here's the question that most people don't want to ask. Is it because Moses was a uniquely good-looking baby that she didn't kill him? Or is the fact that babies in and of themselves are beautiful and already have inherent worth that deserves protection that she didn't kill him? In other words, it's not the beauty, it's not his looks that gave him value. He's valuable, and that's why he's perceived as beautiful. We reflect our creator's heart when we look at children. And if we don't see it, it's because there's something disordered in us that needs to be changed. When I was a younger man, I'm pretty young still, but when I was a younger man, I did not like kids. And I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. And it wasn't until I started reading and understanding the scriptures that I said, no, there's something wrong with that. There's something disordered in me if I cannot appreciate the innocence of children. And I cannot seek to protect them and care for them. 
and it needs to become reoriented in Christ. This is why there's the story, right, of the children approaching Jesus. And what do the disciples say? Get out of here. Master doesn't want to speak with you. What does he say? Suffer the little children, for such is the kingdom of heaven. There was something wrong with the apostles that they treated children that way. And it needed to be reordered in Christ. Children are inherently valuable. They don't need to do anything to prove their worth or beauty. We recognize it. And in so doing, we share our Father's heart when it comes to human life. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much for these passages. And I pray that if we see in our hearts how we've been influenced and moved by the culture and our view of women and our view of motherhood and our view of children, that you would reorient us, that you would purify us in our perspectives, that we would see it the way that you do. God, we don't want to be instructed by anything less than your divine revelation. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to honor you and to see the glory that you've placed within this act. We're thankful that you've given your body for us. Help us to give our bodies for others. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.